it's Mercedes and this is the West Block Podcast. This week we're talking about small businesses and there are a lot of people out there hurting, worried about a second shutdown, finding their businesses or their employer mandated to close because of the increasing numbers of COVID-19. So we're going to sit down with Mary Ng. She is the minister in charge of small businesses. She's made a lot of changes to the supports that are available, but isn't enough. And what will she do to protect Canadian small businesses from big giants like Amazon and Walmart who are making significant profits in this pandemic? We'll ask those questions and more just ahead. Joining me now is Minister of Small Business, Export and Promotion and International Trade, Mary Ng. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister. We hope that you and your family are well. We just heard from Dan Kelly there. You know, he was telling us here at the West Block that he really feels you and Minister Freeland have been listening. He did not feel that the previous finance minister, Mr. Morneau, did the same. You've made a lot of changes to programs, but there's still an awful lot of concern and worry out there from small businesses who've been told you must shut down because of this second wave of COVID-19. They're saying, I've done everything right. I've been careful. Why do I have to shut down? I may not survive. What is your message to them as the minister today? Well, Mercedes, uh, thank you so much. And uh, all the best to you and your family as well for uh, good health and, uh, and staying safe. What I would say to those businesses is, precisely why we have introduced the supports that we have for businesses. I'll uh, point out the rent subsidy in particular. We know that businesses are experiencing revenue loss, have experienced revenue loss. So that is why we've introduced the rent subsidy and there an additional 25% to help with that fixed cost should should the business have to experience a shutdown as a result of a health, uh, as a result of a health order. This is, uh, it is difficult. It's been absolutely difficult for businesses all across the country. And it is that very balance that we all as Canadians have had to deal with, which is fighting this COVID-19. We introducing that additional um, support for those businesses that may have to shut down due to a health uh, uh, because of COVID-19. And businesses certainly acknowledging that your government has made adjustments to the programs and, and not just minor tweaks, but some pretty major changes that make them more accessible and better for businesses. But there's still a gap between the old programs and the new. There's a few weeks where businesses won't qualify. Some are saying, I have to pay my rent in those weeks. I can't manage to pay my bills. Why was it that the government didn't launch these new improved programs sooner with all the scientific protection, uh, projections, pardon me, about a second wave? We've been listening to businesses and working with them all along. And I would point out that our programs are a suite of programs. So what we heard clearly from businesses really important for businesses to keep their people even when their revenues are not back as they would be pre-COVID-19. So that's where the wage subsidy comes in. And of course, we're extending that all the way until uh, the summer of 2021. The same thing with respect to the rent subsidy. We're going to extend that until the summer of 2021. And the additional SIBA loan that we're just adding another 20000 to where 10,000 of that uh, 20 would be forgivable if you're able to pay it back um, in 2022. So it's a suite of programs to deal with keeping your people, dealing with those fixed costs, and to have a bit of that working capital 
all working together so that we can help businesses through this difficult time because it Minister, is difficult. I, and we said, I think the question from these businesses is why weren't these programs available earlier? Why, why is there a gap if we knew that this was potentially coming and there was likely to be more shutdowns? Well, what we're doing here in uh, the rent subsidy, I think that's the one you're talking about, uh, that program, the previous program concluded in September. But I also want to reassure businesses that the new rent subsidy will be available to businesses backdated to September. So their eligibility will absolutely get them that coverage for September. It's also why we introduce additional liquidity through SEBA. So it is that complementarity of the programs that is out there to help our businesses. And of course, wage subsidy continues. And uh, and we're continuing that at its current levels until December. And, uh, and, and the program overall will be available until the end of next summer. There's been some concern about what big retailers are, are doing in Canada. I'm thinking about big multinational corporations like Amazon or Walmart, that they're facing increased costs. And some small businesses are saying, look, they're trying to pass this cost on to us. They're telling us we have to get our rates down. We are already barely within our margins. Is the government looking to do something to address how these massive international businesses are allegedly treating small Canadian businesses that are already struggling? Our work always will and continues to be helping our small businesses. I want to point out a really terrific program called Canada United, which we partnered with the Chamber uh, of Commerce on. And this is really about promoting buy local. I think you can uh, look forward to seeing more of that. I, it's taken Team Canada to flatten this curve. It's taken Team Canada and communities all around the country to help support those local incredible businesses. I've seen businesses do incredible pivots right now, utilizing e-commerce and digital so that they are uh, continuing to uh, manage through COVID. And whether it's the new ideas or the new pivots that are coming or helping businesses bridge through this important period, we are going to be there. We're going to continue to be there. We've said all the way along, we've got your back. We're going to manage and fight COVID-19 and at the same time support our businesses so that they can bridge themselves to, so that we can get to the other side of COVID-19. That is our commitment, and I continue to work hard. Our government continues to work hard. I'll listen to businesses, and we're going to do whatever it takes to help our businesses get through this from coast to coast to coast. Minister Ng, late last week, the Chinese ambassador to Canada uh, made a comment about Canada's decision to allow Hong Kong activists, freedom activists, to come here. And a lot of folks are interpreting this as basically a thinly veiled threat. Are you concerned that China is about to retaliate against Canadian businesses, given Canada's decision to allow those in Hong Kong who are fighting for freedom to come here? Well, my colleague, Minister Champagne, has uh, already spoken on this about, uh, about uh, those remarks being inappropriate. And Canada will always stand up for Canadians, uh, no matter where they are in the world. And Canada will always stand up for human rights uh, with respect to Canadian businesses that operate anywhere in the globe, including in China. We will continue to stand up for Canadian businesses, work hard on their behalf, as we always have, our producers, our businesses, and uh, that work will continue. Minister Ng, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And it's Small Business Week this week, uh, uh, starting tomorrow. So uh, let's all get out there and support our Canadian businesses.
We'll get to the next segment in just a few moments, but if you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review, give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and of course, tell your friends. Last week, the federal government met with Indigenous leaders to discuss disturbing accounts of racism within Canada's healthcare system. Those conversations were happening at the same time as escalating tensions on the East Coast and concerns about violence against Mi'kmaq fishermen in Nova Scotia. Joining me now to discuss this is Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde. Good morning, Chief Bellegarde, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity to be here, Mercedes. You had an opportunity to meet with some of the Indigenous and political leadership in Canada on Friday, talking about discrimination in the Canadian healthcare system. This, of course, comes after that shocking video uh, that was just before the death of Joyce Esquan, how she was treated in a hospital in Quebec. It has led mm-hmm. to calls for an inquiry, calls for criminal charges, calls for accountability in the healthcare system. What came of that meeting, and and are you satisfied that there is a plan to address the kind of racism that we're seeing in the healthcare system? Well, well, first off, uh, we lift up uh, the ministers of the Crown, the federal government, that called for this meeting um, on Friday to talk about and listen, basically to bear witness to a lot of uh, First Nations and Métis and Inuit doctors that are working in a healthcare system. And so we listened and we, we, we heard their stories. But we also listened to the husband of uh, Joyce Echequan, and uh, we heard his story as well and the pain that he feels now that his wife has passed on. Uh, and but, so nobody in this country can deny that there's systemic racism or systemic discrimination in the healthcare system. It's a fact and it's real. The question now is, what are we going to do about it? So we listened all day on Friday to testimonies and, and everything else, experiences from, from basically what George Echequan experienced in Quebec to, to Mr. Sinclair, who died in waiting for uh, health services in Winnipeg Hospital, to the guessing game in, in BC between the doctors and the nurses trying to guess the alcohol content of a First Nations person. So there's there are so many examples given. Now everybody's starting to focus on what are the answers? What are the solutions? So everything from looking at a first uh, an ombudsperson so that there is a place to go with these stories, looking at more accountability in the system, getting more First Nations nurses and doctors into the system, into positions of authority, Uh, even looking at transfers to the provinces, that even the talk about looking at before these healthcare monies are transferred to the provinces and territorial governments, that they have a plan on how to deal with systemic discrimination in the healthcare system. And so that was talked about, and there was another date picked in January to come back with some real concrete recommendations how to deal with this systemic racism in the healthcare system. What is your position on the transfers to the provinces? Because as you were mentioning there, some Indigenous Canadians believe that the federal government should refuse to make those transfers or should make them contingent on the provinces actually having a plan to deal with racism against Indigenous Canadians in their healthcare system. Well, anything that you can use to put pressure on the provincial and territorial governments to have a plan in place should be looked at. And so you got to look at the whole Canadian transfer uh, health transfer agreement, the CHTA, and that has to be looked at. And whether it requires policy or legislative change to make that a requirement, that's one of the tools that you should look at in the toolbox. Because, again, the provincial governments will say health care is a provincial jurisdiction. Well, a lot of First Nations, Métis, Inuit people access that health care system. But right now, they're just not getting the proper services and treatment. And so that's very real. And so we have to look at every avenue, every tool we can 
to bring about systemic change into a system that really is systemic racism and discrimination against First Nations people. So that's one of the tools. Like Before you transfer these billions of dollars, that there should be a very concrete action plan in place on how to deal with this so that this no longer happens again. It's 2020, for goodness sake. We all need to have good quality health care, every one of us from coast to coast to coast. I want to turn our attention as well to what's happening with the Mi'kmaq fishermen in Nova Scotia uh, and this escalating violence and tension. Have you been satisfied with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's response on this? Well, it's moving in the right way, Mercedes. This is a longstanding issue. Uh, you've got a recent Supreme Court decision 21 years ago, the Marshall decision, which is a, the highest court of this land that recognized the Mi'kmaq fisher people's right to fish. You know, it's an inherent right. It's a treaty right. It's contained in Section 35 of Canada's Constitution, which recognizes existing Aboriginal treaty rights. So the implementation of that right has to be moving into the right way. And so Chief Michael Sack, under his own jurisdiction, has issued licenses and permits. So it's a, it's a lawfully regulated fishery. And so there's two things that have to happen on the East Coast right now. One, we have to make sure that there's calm heads and, and cooler heads come together so that there's peace on the ground. And that's where we call on the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to do their job. Because we witnessed a van that was burned, no charges. We've seen a physical assault on Chief Michael Sack, no charges. Two people were, were barricaded in a building against their will, no charges. This is not acceptable. So there's an issue of public safety that must be addressed immediately. Then the next issue would be a process to work with the Mi'kmaq Nation to define what moderate livelihood means. And again, this is not a, a conservation issue because the Mi'kmaq fishery accesses 1% of the total lobstery fishery out on the East Coast. So it's more in the sense of how does everybody start working together to peacefully coexist and everybody benefit from that resource that's there. So defining that moderate livelihood is the next big step going forward. And that's where DFO comes into play, Department of Fisheries Notion, to start working with the leadership in that territory. National Chief Bellegarde, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again for the opportunity, Mercedes. When Parliament was prorogued, it halted all government business, including the committees that were looking into the We Charity controversy. Those committees are now once again in full swing, reigniting that probe. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Conservative MP Michael Barrett, NDP MP Matthew Green, and Liberal MP Greg Fergus. Thanks for coming on the show, gentlemen. I know you've all been seeing a lot of each other on committee these days. But Greg, I want to start with you. The Conservatives want an anti anti-corruption committee to look into all of these allegations and concerns or to potentially bring this to the floor of the House of Commons. Are the Liberals open to either of those options? Well, look, Mercedes, first thing I should say is that I think it's a bad idea for MPs to be investigating other MPs. It's like having a dispute with your neighbor. You're not going to go to your neighbor's spouse to try to resolve it. You're going to go to a disinterested third party, you know, a mediator or a judge if that's necessary. You want to go with somebody who doesn't have an interest at stake in the result. That's the ethics commissioner. So really, uh, first off, we would really believe that it should be going to the ethics commissioner. Now, uh, there are several proposals 
proposals which are being, being, being brought forward by the opposition parties. I think that the NDP uh, proposal has some merit. We'll see where the discussions go between the House leaders. But, uh, you know, what you really want to do is to try to move off of this issue and to focus on the issues which Canadians want us to focus on. The job number one is that ensuring their, uh, their physical health and their economic safety uh, and, and well-being. And that's what we want to do. Okay, so Michael, uh, you know, why not leave this in the hands of a parliamentary watchdog whose job it is to actually look into this? I mean, surely if you're coming forward with a committee named the Anti-Corruption Committee, no government of any stripe is really going to think that is an idea that they want to get on board with. Look, the, uh, you know, over the course of, of the summer, we had these hearings where, uh, you know, the prime minister, uh, he did testify. We had, uh, you know, members of the government uh, testify. And at the time, under immense uh, uh, public with pressure, uh, these folks came and, and testified at committee. But after the prime minister shut down parliament, he thought that he also had shut down the exchange, the channel, how half a billion dollar contract was awarded. Uh, and it was awarded to an organization that paid members of the prime minister's family half a million dollars. And, uh, you know, the government has been given every opportunity to be forthright. But at every turn, we're getting uh, contradictions in testimony and contradictions in evidence, heavily redacted documents against the will of parliamentary committee. It's time to let the sunshine in, release the documents. Uh, Matthew, I know that the NDP has proposed a pandemic spending committee, which would also encompass we. Where are you at in terms of where the NDP would like to see this go? What do you think is the appropriate investigation? Well, I would agree that if we were to take the Prime Minister at his word, simply releasing these documents would exonerate him. And one would think that the Liberal Party would have an interest to do that. But yet, at every step along the way, Justin Trudeau and this WE scandal involve giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their well-connected friends and continue to leave students behind. So while the Conservatives wanted to create a bit of a circus, we were really interested in getting to the bottom of this, which is why instead of having multiple committees doing multiple studies, we were calling for a new committee that could focus on this scandal and all liberal, liberal government spending during this pandemic. Uh, Greg, when you look at, at this from the average Canadian's perspective, they're at home, they're watching, they're wondering what happened with we. They're also concerned about the pandemic, absolutely, but this is part of that spending. Why not simply release all these documents? I mean, one of the things that the opposition is, is, is pushing for is to see the documents that were to be released, to find out exactly how much money uh, members of the Trudeau family received. Why not just disclose all of that, put it out in the sunshine if there's nothing there to hide? Mercedes, that's a really good question, and we actually did do that. We released thousands and thousands of pages of, of documents, of emails uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the Finance Committee over the summer. Uh, all of the information that's related to We Charity was, was released. Uh, there's no new information to be had, but yet, uh, in spite of all of that, the opposition maintains that, well, there were blacked out parts of, of that. That's because that material that was blacked out wasn't germane to the WE charity. It was a whole bunch of other issues which uh, public servants would be uh, discussing uh, amongst each other, which doesn't have to do with WE charity. We released all the information on the WE charity, but yet, in spite of all that evidence, in spite of all the testimony, uh, the Conservatives uh, and others still maintain uh, the narrative that um, that doesn't fit the storyline that they've set. So uh, they've already written the conclusion. They just want to try to, looking desperately for new facts to, to try to uh, fit the, the conclusions that were already written. 
Uh, Michael, if, if all of this information has been released in public and discussed, what is it that you think is new or that you're going to cover in, uncover in these documents uh, that would be a revelation to Canadians? Uh, you know, it, you know what, what Greg said, unfortunately, is not true. Uh, we heard from the Liberals this summer that uh, that the documents were actually redacted by uh, the nonpartisan law clerk. And the law clerk had to publish a letter, which is quite extraordinary, saying, uh, no, in fact, he received the documents uh, redacted against the order of a parliamentary committee. So this is a government acting in bad faith. And that issue has been filibustered. Uh, you, know, uh, at the, you know, here on Sunday morning, if you take a look at the parliamentary website, it still shows that the finance committee is, is in a state of suspension because uh, the chair refuses to address this matter that this question of privilege, the privilege of members of parliament being violated by the government. That's how desperate they are. Uh, to try and hide the, the corruption in this government. Final word to you, Matthew. Do you think we're going to see answers in this whole controversy? Well, my good friend Greg's memory might be short, but my certainly wasn't. On August the 19th, the Ethics Committee was supposed to receive the ability for MPs to see what was inside the Speaker's spotlight. The MP, uh, my friend Greg Ferguson, was part of that. He actually supported it at that time. So the question is, what has changed? What has changed during prorogation that has changed their heart, where they are no longer allowing MPs to have the kind of scrutiny required for a committee like Ethics? So the demand is clear. Canadians need to know the truth. They deserve to know the truth. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's West Block podcast. We will be back, of course, again next week when we will put your questions to Canada's most powerful politicians and do our best 